Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Living Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would indeed meet us through your living word, the eternal word, the words of eternal life that have given each person here who knows you life from the grave. And we ask that in your mercy you would address each one of us into the depths of our being, that you will revive, revive our souls, that you would give us the rest that you have promised. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, can I say again how good it is to see everyone, and I hope you have had a really good break if you did manage to get away. We were very blessed to go up to the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, where my parents have a place near a lake, which we're very blessed to go up to. It's a free holiday. It's great fun for everyone. And over the years, we've been building up the equipment for use on the lake. First, it was a stand-up paddleboard when that was all the rage. And then next, it became a donut to put behind the tinny for the children, and then super soakers for water gun fights, etc., etc. At this rate, we're going to open a water park and charge for those who want to come. The latest addition this summer, courtesy of my wife from Costco, was a giant blow-up floating sofa ring. Do you know what I mean? Those sorts of things where you blow them up and you can lie back and there's very svelte-looking people, tanned, drinking pina coladas and the and the cup holder looking very smooth and drifting down the water serenely. Well, we tried it. We couldn't wait. Spent most of the morning pumping it up with a sort of handheld pump with which what's, what seemed hours. But then, of course, within a moment, we had the children jumping all over us. It was an uncontrollable spinning vortex. We didn't even attempt the drinks. It was our first and last attempt. I hope you've had a chance to relax and that you've been a little bit more successful than I have to get away from work, as it were. My question this morning for us, and the question I think of the passage, is what is God doing in the world today? I think many people think of God a little bit like a more successful version of the person floating down the lake in the blow-up giant sofa, lying back, relaxing, disinterested, disconnected from the things of this world, serenely up there in heaven. That was the philosophical view of the deists popular in the 18th century, the clockwork version of God. God who set things in time and set things in place but then folded his arms and let everything just carry on. But our passage this morning tells us that that is profoundly mistaken. God is a worker and God is at work. He always has been. Yes, of course, he rested on the seventh day, but that was a rest from his work of creation. At the same time, he has always been at work, sustaining the world, and very specifically, in the coming of the Lord Jesus, bringing about an ultimate Sabbath rest, a rest from sin and all of its consequences, and new creation, an ultimate Sabbath, the world to come. Look with me to verse 16 and what John says. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and here it is, I am working. We're continuing our series in John's Gospel, which we began in term one, 2022, 
we've named the series Life in Jesus' Name. And you'll understand why when you hear again the purpose statement that John gives to his whole book. He tells us why he's writing in chapter 20, verse 31. Don't turn to it, but let me read it out. He says, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus' identity, who he is, the eternal Son of God, the word from the beginning. But at the same time, that by believing, trusting in him, receiving him as your king, you may have life in his name. Life not as we think of it in this world, but life as it is really intended. Life and life to the full. Life with God, our creator. Life apart from sin and all of its devastating consequences. And we continue this series this year in John's Gospel, taking chapters 5 to 10. Chapters 1 to 10 is the eternal word of God from before the beginning who's come all the way down into our world. Then chapters 10 to 20 is that eternal word returning to the Father, having completed his work of his death on the cross and taking people with him as he's raised up those who will believe in him. And in this new section, we begin with this question, what is God doing? in the world today? What is the work of God? And the answer is that he is at work, very much at work, actively at work. And what is he doing? Well, through his son, he is giving rest individually in people's lives as they receive him, but ultimately preparing a world of ultimate Sabbath rest without all that spoils and corrupts and denigrates and destroys this creation. But why is the rest needed? Well, it's obvious as we look around, and it's obvious as we look at this passage, because, point one, and if you are a note-taker, because of the wreckage of sin, the wreckage of sin. Verse one, after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, and while I am going in, another steps down before me. And so John takes us to Jerusalem. That's where the scene begins. And he gives us all of these details. It's at the Sheep Gate. He's come from Galilee, now down to the capital. He tells us it's Bethsaida. And there are five roofed colonnades, these long poles, as it were, holding up five different roofs that give shade and cover around this pool. In in 1888, archaeologists discovered this site. What we're talking about, and the reason John gives us this kind of detail, is because this is real eyewitness history. And then we meet the man who is at the centre of this encounter, a man who is utterly hopeless. He's the picture of an individual, but John has selected him and Jesus has sought him out because he's a picture not only of himself, but of our world. 
a world that is not at rest. He is a man who is suffering all the consequences, the devastating consequences of sin that has destroyed this creation. Sin, which is our rebellion against God, what we were part of with our first parents all the way in the beginning, our turning our backs on God, which like a crack in a priceless Ming vase has caused everything to crumble, which like a cancer that takes root in one part of the body spreads completely, which is like a corrosion that has corrupted the whole thing. And we're all part of it. All of us part of this sin sickness. And it's often wrong for us and almost always wrong for us to equate an individual sin with their suffering or sickness. A terrible thing to do pastorally. And if somebody says that to you, you really must reject what they say or at least be very, very, very cautious. Jesus in chapter 9 meets this man who is born blind. The authorities say, who was sinner? Him or his parents? Directly linking sin and his suffering. But Jesus says, no, you're mistaken. Again, in Luke's gospel with the Tower of Siloam, it wasn't their sin that led to their death. But in this instance, unusually, Jesus does seem to draw a direct link between this man's sin and his suffering. You see it there in verse 14. Jesus finds him in the temple and he says, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. We don't know what his particular sin was. Perhaps he was a bandit who broke his back during some raid. But it seems to be that Jesus picks him out from the whole crowd of all those invalids because in his case, and perhaps his alone, his sin directly led to his suffering. And there in verse 3, we are given a picture of the whole scene, and it is miserable. Multitudes of blind, lame, and paralyzed by the pool. You know that in Europe, very often there are certain groups of people, certain nationalities, who are famed for going out at 4 a.m. in the morning to the deck chairs around the pool at the hotels and plotting out their uh, towels to make sure that they get their place so that as soon as the sun is up, every one of them, all like beach whales, I mean sort of beach seals, no, I mean just lovely human beings, there by the pool, flesh everywhere, no space on the ground. Well, this is a kind of perverted, twisted version of that. All these people around the pool, but not on deck chairs with bronzed skin. No, they're lame. They're paralyzed. They're blind. They're profoundly sick. And why is it that they are there? Well, those of you who have got a physical Bible, which I strongly and warmly encourage you to bring to church, will see in the footnote there, uh, numbered four at the bottom, which is not in the original text, but reflects the tradition that people thought of this pool that when it was stirred up from time to time, that was the work of an angel of God. And when that happened, very occasionally, the whole group of those sick people would try and get there down first, and if they did, they might find themselves healed. All of them, verse 5, waiting for a chance. And then we zoom in on our man, an invalid there for 38 years. I did the math, as the Americans say, that's 1985, when Sony Walkmans were all the rage. It was a very long time ago. But for 38 years, 
He's been coming here, presumably, day after day, watching, waiting for some movement in the water. And then as soon as it happens, commotion, everyone crawling to try and get there. But every time, he's beaten. Verse 5, verse 6, rather, Jesus knows he's been there a long time. Do you want to be healed, he says. This man's answer in his head, do ducks quack? I expect, of course he does. But the problem is that he has no friends. He's helpless. He's isolated. No one to drag him into the water so that he'll be there first and be healed. This man, a picture of the impact of sin in an individual life, but the wreckage of sin across our whole world. Sin which, when we step in, back and think about it, is comprehensive. That scene around the pool with no space on the ground, just bodies everywhere, is our world. Every single person who has been born a child of Adam, plagued by this disease, this sin disease, which leads to death, which leads to judgment. Comprehensive, it's permanent. That's, I think, the idea behind the 38 years. This is a long time. There's no relief, no rest Our whole lives, our whole age, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, has been under this veil of death, of sin sickness. Comprehensive, permanent and hopeless. This man who has no one to help him, which ultimately is true of each of us. No one from within this creation able to help us ultimately to be healed by ourselves We are without any hope at all. It's true to my own experience, and I'm sure you can echo the same. Just in the last few months up on Facebook, a friend of mine, or an acquaintance rather, from university, who has a melanoma, which has spread to the rest of his body, and it's looking very serious. Or my wife's close school friend, who had the great joy of giving birth to a baby just over a year ago. But within that year, her new husband contracting testicular cancer and dying, never to meet his daughter. And each of us in our own situations will know the plague and corruption of sin and how it has damaged our lives and the lives of others. And that is not God's intention. God's creation was a good creation. We read that over and over and over again in Genesis. It was good, it was good, it was very good when man was created. We were made for a relationship with God, for an eternal Sabbath rest with him. But we have destroyed that. And our world is diseased, plagued by sin, leading to death and to judgment beyond death. That's the implication of verse 14. Jesus says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What is worse than being paralyzed for 38 years? Answer, facing the God of the universe unforgiven. That is what is facing this man without the intervention of the Lord Jesus. And that is true of all of us. The wreckage, the terrible permanent, hopeless, comprehensive wreckage 
of sin. And that is the world into which the Lord Jesus, the eternal God, has come. And he has come because he has come to do something about it. He has come to bring a true and ultimate Sabbath rest. Point one, the wreckage of sin. Point two, the rest of Jesus. The Sabbath rest of Jesus. Verse eight, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. What is God doing in the world is where we began. The answer is he is at work. And ironically, he is at work to bring rest. Not rest as idleness, as we tend to think about it, but rest from sin. Rest from all the impact of sin. Rest from life apart from our creator. Rest of the new creation. And if in case you think that I'm getting a little bit beyond myself or a bit excited and reading too much into it, and that I'm seeing Sabbath where it isn't there, well, I think you'll, I hope you'll agree that this is what John intends. Four times he emphasizes that this is the Sabbath when this healing is happening. Verse 9, the Sabbath. Verse 10, it's the Sabbath. Verse 16, it's the Sabbath. Verse 18, it is the Sabbath. You can't miss it. What Jesus is doing is a picture of the rest, the Sabbath rest that he has come to bring. And Sabbath is what God intended in Genesis 2. But post the fall, Sabbath was written into the law of Israel as a gift to his people to revive them from the curse of work. Not that work is bad, work is good, but cursed work under the fall. And not only to give them that revival, but also to point their eyes forward to recognize that this world is temporary and passing and that one day soon, according to his promise, he will bring out a new creation, bring about a new creation, a true Sabbath rest, the removal of sin and the enjoyment of God. And that was the point of Isaiah 35 and the reading. And those of us who were alert and listening well will know that that was part of the return of God's king which would be signaled by, verse 5, the blind seeing, the deaf having their ears unstopped, and significantly for us, the lame leaping like a deer. I won't demonstrate, but you get the idea. A sign of God's new creation, his Sabbath rest breaking in. And that is precisely what Jesus brings to this man, a Sabbath in his life. He is a picture of what Jesus has come to do. Life defined like this. Life which is rest, which is rest from sin, which is relationship with God. And he does it in the most magnificent way. Such a dramatic change. Get up, take your bed and walk and answer. At once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. And now that day was the Sabbath. What Jesus does is so dramatic But we mustn't forget, it is so profoundly good. What a dramatic change for this man. 38 years stuck to the ground. And then in a moment, the words of the living creator, raising him from the dead, get up, literally be raised. And he's alive again. All the burdens and the hurts and the spoiling and the sadness, gone. And notice how he does it. The word 
in the prologue of John's gospel is the one who created all things. And with his word, he gives life. And this, of course, points to the identity of the Lord Jesus that we see here in this passage. The son of the father, the eternal son. The one who was begotten of the father from before all ages, who was eternal. Who was there in the beginning. More of which we will think about next week. And notice also it is an act of grace. Nothing that the Lord Jesus had to do. He's the one who is full of grace and truth. Bethesda, the commentators tell us, means house of mercy, of grace. And so back to our question, what is God doing in the world today? Answer, God the Son, along with God the Father, has been working and is working and is bringing about Sabbath rest in individual lives through his life-giving eternal word and to ultimately bring about a complete, renewed, tearless new creation. It's helpful now just to pause for a moment and think for ourselves what that means. First of all, it helps us to see the whole universe rightly, to interpret history accurately, to recognize what is actually on God's agenda today. You open up God's diary, I've said this before, but it's true, at the top of the list, what is God doing? At work, bringing new creation. At work, bringing Sabbath rest. At work, giving life through the word of my son in individuals and one day, my new creation. It helps us to understand work in itself, work which is so maligned and confused in this world, work which is good in the first place because it's created by God. God himself is a worker and he's made us to work. Work is not evil, but work which at the same time as being good is also grim, spoiled, cursed because of the fall. By the sweat of our brow, we'll work. But now also work that is governed by the gospel. Good, grim, governed by the gospel. That is to say there is a priority in God's list. And the work that God is most concerned about in this world is the work that aligns with his aim. The work of this speaking of his word to bring about new creation rest. And that will help us, I think, as we think rightly about our new year. All of us will have made and broken resolutions in the last month. But all of us are right to recognize that in our jobs and in our lives, in our families, in our day-to-day existence, there will be all sorts of demands on our time. But the thing that matters most of all, the thing that will align with God's priority, the thing that we will be doing in line with the work of God, is to see the word of God enter into people's lives, ours, our families, our friends, our neighbours and others to bring life from the dead, to bring Sabbath rest to souls, to bring about, ultimately, members of a new creation. What is God doing in the world today? Bringing about Sabbath through the word of his Son. And how do people react when God does that. The wreckage of sin, the rest of Jesus, and tragically and finally, the rejection by his people. Look with me, please, to verse 10. 
So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And this was why Jesus, and verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then again in verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was breaking the Sabbath. Chapters 1 to 4, the word comes into the world. Chapters 5 to 10, the theme that is particularly on view in these chapters is the reaction. And if you remember back to the prologue, John said this, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. What should happen in verse 10? Surely it is a great praising of God. Hallelujah. 38 years you've been healed, you've been restored. But instead they want to kill him. The irony is that he's giving life on the Sabbath and they're trying to bring death. And they show very clearly whose side they're on. And we're so used to this as we read through the Gospels, we, I think, lose the shock. But what they do is utterly and profoundly shocking and absurd. This man has been healed from being stuck on the ground for 38 years and they're upset about the Sabbath. And why? Well, they, they claim that this man is breaking the Sabbath by picking up his mat, which is nothing to do with the Word of God at all or the Fourth Commandment. It is to do with their traditions that have grown up like barnacles blocking the true meaning of God's word. And again, they are profoundly mistaken. Verse 16, they persecute Jesus because he's doing these things, these life-giving things, these Sabbath-fulfilling things on the Sabbath. You've heard me speak about Jesse Owens before, so please forgive me if you know the story, but I find it illustrates so accurately what is going on here. Owens was a very famous, great black American athlete who was the star of the 1936 Berlin Olympics. And if you've seen some of those Pathé films, those black and whites, where Hitler storms out of the stadium because Owens was daring to beat event after event all of his Aryan athletes in the sprint and the long jump, gold for America. And Owens was returned to Atlanta, his hometown in the deep south of America, And a great big civic dinner was laid on for him because he had put Atlanta on the map. And at that dinner, all in white tie, Owens was presented with his award and given a standing ovation. But the moment the formalities were over, shockingly, Owens was sent out of the room and made to eat his dinner by himself because the officials did not want to be seen to eat their dinner with a black man. Now, here's the one who is the reason for the whole thing. But he was shunned by those who should embrace him. That is what has happened with the Lord Jesus. The one who came to his own people, yet they rejected him. And it is a great tragedy that today in Bondi and St. Ives and in Golders Green in London and in Brooklyn in New York and in Tel Aviv, God's chosen people with some beautiful exceptions have rejected their Messiah and not just them but the whole world following in their train and you imagine the early readers of John's gospel and the persecution they're receiving if they're Jewish for following this non-Messiah or if they were Gentiles and seeing that Jesus wasn't even followed by his own people one might begin to second guess 
and ask why. But John writes this for us so that we would not be put off as people, countless people around us, Jew and Gentile, reject Jesus. Because the problem is not with Jesus, the problem is with them. And it is absurd and it is terrible. And not just the Jewish authorities as we close. What struck me as I studied this passage was that this man himself rejects Jesus. In verse 14, he's at the temple. Verse 15, he goes and he turns Jesus in. He tells the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. Though he's used by John as this worked example of the Sabbath rest, in his own heart, in fact, he didn't receive it. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That's a pretty dour, glum place to finish on. But it's not the end. Because at the back end of this section in chapter 10, we meet a man who in every way is very similar to this lame man. He happens to be blind, not lame. But he meets Jesus on a Sabbath in Jerusalem. He has interactions with the Jewish authorities and with Jesus. He's interrogated by the authorities. But this man, if you're familiar with John's gospel, you'll know, does not reject him, but obeys the son and becomes a child of God, as is promised in the prologue. And so what is God doing in the world today? God is graciously and powerfully at work in individual after individual after individual, giving life from the dead, raising the lame to be those who walk again. Being that who brings from the consequences and devastation of sin, new creation life. And he will do it permanently and completely soon. And for us who believe in him, it's a moment of rejoicing. It's a moment of joining in his great task. And it is a moment of continuing to trust him despite all of those around us who might reject him. Because the problem is not with him, it is with a world that will not receive their king. Let's pray. Get up, take your bed and walk. Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize if we are yours this morning that we can only understand these things we only have the rest that you've given us from the consequences of our sin because of your word. Your word which gives us the benefits of your death and resurrection. We pray that this morning you would help us to see this world rightly, that you would help us to understand what you are at work doing these days and that we would trust you and join you in this great program. And we ask it for your glory's sake. Amen.